Luke chapter 13 is where we're going to be. Um, this short parable, verses 18 through 19. Jesus, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Just a few verses before this, uh, we learn the context of this parable and why Jesus told it. Scripture records, Luke records, that Jesus was uh, in the synagogue and he was teaching on a Sabbath day. It was a Sabbath and he was teaching. And while teaching, he stopped because he saw a woman who had been crippled, bound by Satan, is is his words, uh, for 18 years. And so in front of everyone, he calls this woman to himself, he lays his hands on her, and he says, woman, you are freed from your disability, and for the first time, think about this, the first time in 18 years, this woman is able to stand up straight. What a great day to be at church healed right in front of everyone. And so it says she glorified God. She worshiped God. She declared the work of God, the worth of God because of the work of God in her life. And so that's her response. In contrast to her response, when a ruler of the temple saw this miracle take place, uh, instead of rejoicing with her that the power of God and the glory of God had visibly come among them, he, a leader of God's people, was angry. He was mad. He was upset. So speaking to the people, this is kind of how Jesus says this, or how Luke records this. The man turns, the ruler turns to the people, and he's talking to the people, but really he's kind of talking to Jesus. So he's trying to get the people on his side. Um, He said, you can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't do that here. We're God's people, and you're breaking our Sabbath rules. You need to get in line. That's kind of the idea of what he is saying to Jesus, to the people. You see, God had given his people a Sabbath day as a means of rest from their work and healing for their bodies and as a means of trusting in him as their true provider, not the work of their own hands. And so to guard this special day that God had given them of rest, they created all these rules. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do on this day of rest. And all that to guard the rest. But by doing so, they, have become, they had become lords of the Sabbath. And this day of rest had become a, a day of burdensome rule keeping. They made it something it was never meant to be. But now that the Lord of the Sabbath was standing right in front of them, the one who is rest was right in front of them. He's here and he's teaching them. And now he's showing them through a miracle of healing that the curse of sin and Satan's power is coming to an end. He was showing them that true restoration and true rest was on its way in. This is the very thing. They were the people of God that they were waiting for. And yet when the ruler saw he rejected it. He rejected Jesus and his saving kingdom work. And the ruler was trying to get everybody else to do the same. And and so because they're the people of God waiting for salvation from God, Jesus, what did he do? He turned to him and said, you bunch of hypocrites. 
This is what you're waiting for, and it's right in front of you. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And so he gave this short parable as a response to teach them to open their eyes to see the kingdom that they are waiting for. And the reason they needed to be taught is because if they failed to get this, if they failed to see its beginning right here now and receive it, they would fail to enjoy the culmination of God's salvation in his kingdom later. If they miss the beginning, they would miss its end. A few months ago, some friends and I were hiking to a waterfall and we missed the beginning of the path at the river bottom where it starts to go up to the fall. And we thought we knew the way. Um, I had been there before, it had been a while, but we had GPS, I knew the way. So we're just charging ahead, going up this valley. And by the time I look around, this is like a kid-friendly path, but I am I'm like hanging on to poison ivy vines. And I knew we're in the wrong valley. Something's, something's off here. And when we looked, we, we looked at the map and we realized we weren't just like 10 feet over, we were a mountain over. We were in the wrong place. We were in the wrong valley. And we could have climbed as hard as we want and as fast as we want and driven as hard as we wanted to all day long, but we never would have gotten there. Why? Because we missed the beginning where it goes up towards the right valley. And similarly, the temple leader thought he knew, I know exactly what I'm talking about here. He thought he knew exactly what to look for when the kingdom of God would show up. He knew the way, but Jesus made it clear. You just missed it. The kingdom was right in front of you. The sign that says the kingdom begins here was right here, and the leader rejected it. And he was going the wrong way and trying to lead others to do the same. And so in his kindness, Jesus doesn't just let him run off into the sunset the wrong way. He tells him this parable to teach him about the right way, to teach him about what the coming kingdom looked like so he could repent. Repent means turn around, go the other direction, so he could repent of his wrong thinking and believe that the kingdom of God is here. It is right in front of you. Salvation is here. This is the way to life. You know, we too can think that we have the kingdom of God all figured out. We can think we know what to look for and that we're heading the right way and that um, all we're doing is right. But we, like the ruler, like me in the woods, we can be dead wrong. We can be totally off. And the danger for us is the same as it was for him. If we miss its beginning, we will miss its end. And so what Jesus' parable was intended to teach is that he is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. In him, the kingdom of God has come. All the salvation you long for, you want for, it is found nowhere else but Jesus. The main point today, in Jesus is the kingdom of God. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. And so through this parable, what he does is he teaches three characteristics about the kingdom that we can see so that, so he's trying to describe this way, so that all who hear would put their trust in him as the king of the kingdom and come to him and follow him to have life. So let's look at each of these three characteristics that will hopefully encourage us and help us um, follow Jesus. First, the kingdom of God begins in the small and seemingly insignificant. So Jesus asked his hearers in this parable, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? The first thing he says to answer his own question is, 
It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. So contrary to their expectations that the kingdom would come in sudden power and total domination and it'd be like uh, taken over the world all in one fell swoop, Jesus points to the smallest seed. I'd bring one and put it up here, but you couldn't see it if it was in my hand. He points to the smallest seed in the agrarian industry and says, it's like a man taking that little seed that you can hardly see and, and, and putting it in the dirt and covering it up and hiding it in a place to where if you, were, if you were to walk by, you would never even notice it was there. You wouldn't think it would ever amount to anything or provide or anything, but the man takes that little seed and he puts it in the dirt and he leaves it and he waits. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Now, I don't know about you, but how underwhelming is that? Right? If someone was that were, to ask, were to ask you a question about the kingdom of God and what to look for, how would you answer? If someone were to ask you, how will I know the kingdom of God has come? What am I supposed to look for? How would you answer? Another way to look at it. If you were going to do something for God's kingdom to come, to get, this, to get it started, what would you do? When Peter was ready to do some kingdom come kind of work, remember the guy that um, came after Jesus? What did Peter do? He pulled out a sword and cut somebody's ear off. When James and John saw people reject Jesus, their king, you remember what these two brothers said? Lord, you want us to call down some fire right now to come down and consume these people? Even his own disciples those closest to him envisioned a kingdom coming through sudden and our awesome power and domination. They, th they thought about the kingdom like we think about kingdoms taking over in this world, right? It's going to come through, through numbers. It's going to come through power. It's going to come through total domination. Yet you look at Jesus's life from beginning to end. How did it come? How did he come? How did he bring the kingdom? Jesus came through Mary an unknown peasant girl living in a peasant town, and he was born in a barn. There's nothing special about him growing up, nothing special about his appearance, nothing special about his work. He was a simple carpenter from a simple town. What about his ministry? Think about how it all started. Mark 1, John the Baptist prepares the way for the coming king of the kingdom, and after John baptized Jesus, Jesus stood before all the people Right? He stands before all the people, just baptized by John, like one of his only disciples in that moment. And he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And what did Mark say happened to like his only disciple in that moment? He got arrested and taken off to take in, and taken to jail. Now for me, think about it. That doesn't feel like the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? That doesn't feel like there's a, a takeover at hand. So, but consider what Jesus taught who would be in his kingdom and how they lived in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Why blessed are they? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus began to expand the reach of his ministry, he's going to grow it out by sending out the 12 in Luke 10. You'd think he would pick a bunch of like gladiators, right? Like Russell Crowe kind of guys that are going to go out and bring the kingdom. 
But he didn't choose warriors and gladiators and kings to send out. He chose a ragtag dozen of nobodies. And he basically said, when you go, here's what I want you to do. Don't take anything with you. And when you go into a village, go find the sick people that nobody else wants to be around. And when you heal them, here's what I want you to say. The kingdom of God has come near you. And then when he died, he died between a couple of thieves on a cross outside the city, outside where nobody even cares. You see, when Jesus brought the kingdom, he did not come through pomp and prestige and power. He didn't come as an elite. He came as the meekest of men. He went to filthy nobodies, the dirt of the society, and he did things that nobody cared about for people that nobody cared about. And all people did was walk by and shake their heads at him. You see, they didn't have a category for this kind of coming kingdom. They didn't have a category for a king who would make himself nothing and serve people who didn't deserve to be served. But what Jesus was teaching his hearers is that in him, and yes, in the healing of this sweet little old lady, the kingdom had come. It was here Salvation has come, and the time that you've been waiting for is now. And if you miss its humble beginning, if you reject its arrival because it's not what you expected and it doesn't fit into your categories, if you miss this, you'll miss its amazing end. When the grandness of its end is fulfilled, you'll be in the wrong valley. Friends, it it may not seem like something that happened 2,000 years ago that many people call fiction could matter a whip for today. It may not seem like a man dying on a cross could really have an impact on your life, on your marriage, on your kids, on your work, on your today, on your soul, on your eternity. It may not seem like that. It may not add up in your mind how that could become anything that grand in you, how it could matter that much. But that's the point of the small seed hidden in the dirt, is it not? Nobody could imagine how this could become that. And Jesus is teaching that in him, despite his rather small and humble appearance, despite what it seems, despite it being the healing on this little old lady, God's powerful hand of salvation that you were longing for, it has come. The kingdom is here and the king is right in front of you. So let me ask you this. Um, Have you, and I'm not just talking to those who haven't received Christ, have you received it? Have you received him, the king, or are you, maybe you've received Christ, but you're still waiting on something else, right? Hey, are you waiting for something else, for someone else, something bigger, maybe something to happen, something a little flashier, that next big thing in life? You know, oftentimes I think all of us can be guilty of waiting on God to do something more, something bigger. Maybe we think, If God's going to use me, I got to do something more. I just, I've got to do more. We need to amount to something bigger. So we, like the ruler of the temple, we can set up our own expectations of what God needs to be and do and what we need to be and do for us to come along with this. And when that happens, we say, then I'll come. We make up our own rules about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God and how we get it. When all the while... What we need more than anything else is to simply humble ourselves and say yes to King Jesus who's right in front of us. 
We need to stop looking into the sky and waiting on something else to happen because then I'll live for the glory of God and then I'll do it. And we need to look to the cross for what's already happened and believe and accept it and have life and join with the woman to glorify God. You see that the kingdom, this is the thing we got to get out of this point, that the kingdom begins small is not only instructive for what we're to look for, but it's also instructive for how we are to respond a lot of times we think we've got to have this big yes moment when really what we need to do is just a simple, humble, no excuses, seemingly insignificant, how could it really matter that much? Yes, even today. You know, I, I have to admit, 17 years ago when I turned my life back to the Lord and said, yes, I had no idea what God would do. I was just trying to, just fix me, God. I'm broken. I just need you to fix me. That's all I was after is a fix. I had no idea that God would grow it into what he has. He has turned my life upside down. And I'm going to say to you today, that simple yes can be the beginning of God doing it in your life. The first characteristic is that the kingdom begins in the small and seemingly insignificant. Second, the kingdom of God grows. Jesus said, and it grew. Though the kingdom of God starts small and seems insignificant, it will not stay small. It will not simply sit dormant in the dirt. It will grow. Now we get to see a bit of this. We see the kingdom's growth in the wake of Jesus's life taking root in the scriptures. Um, what started with Jesus and with the 12 disciples, we saw it in Acts 1. It grew to 120 devout followers. And after Peter stood up among the great multitude of people, it says in Acts 2 that 3,000 were added to that number. A few verses later, more were added to that number. And on and on we see through the book of Acts, as the word of God goes forth, more and more. So it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And contrary to the claim of many, that it would eventually amount to nothing and just kind of fall away because it's a crazy man. Today, millions and millions and millions of people around the world have placed their faith in Jesus as king and the kingdom has grown, is continuing to grow. And so we get to see what Jesus' hearers didn't yet have the opportunity to see, that the small seed, that time and that moment that God's kingdom came in Jesus and began in him, though many walked by and wagged their heads and said, see, that kingdom's done. Today we get to see it has not only grown from 120 to 3,000, but it's grown to millions upon millions. And so this is a very subtle point of this parable, but I don't think we should miss it. God's kingdom is a growing kingdom. And so here's the issue with this. Think about this. What happens when things grow? It's just real easy. A lot of you have kids or have been a kid recently or are still kids in here. What happens when you grow? What happens to your genes? They keep crawling up your leg. All of a sudden you're wearing capris, right? If you let your kids stay in the same genes for five years, they're in capris all of a sudden. So what happens when things grow? They change. They don't stay the same, right? In my field at home, I have what I like to call, or at least tell myself, is a small orchard that I planted. Uh, and you know how I know the trees are alive and growing? They're changing. They're getting bigger at the base and new branches with new leaves and eventually fruit starts coming out. Uh, Lane said this in a sermon about a year ago. It was a very profound yet simple statement that I think we can kind of gloss over or miss 
living things grow. And God's kingdom is not a dead tree that looks the same every year, but every year as new branches grow and new roots come out, its shape changes, God's kingdom grows. And here's the rub for us on this. Though we say with all of our heart, we do this, we say we want to grow, right? If I were to ask you in this room, stand up if you want to grow, how many of you would be sitting? Hardly anybody, and a few of you that would would see everyone and be kind of a little weird and you'd stand up too, right? Everybody would stand, everybody would say, I want to grow, right? And we want our kids to grow, not just physically, but spiritually, and we want to be part of a growing church, right? Who wants to be part of a growing church? Yes, head shaking. If you don't, sorry. Uh, Generally speaking, though, right? Generally speaking, listen, we like things to stay the same. Do we not? So we don't like change. We like to find a branch. It can be your seat in this room. It can be anything in life. We like to find a branch and sit on it. And every time we come, every time when we get things set, we want to sit on that branch and we don't want anybody to move. If you've seen the Lego movie, that's kind of the thing behind it. Everybody needs to get perfectly set and then we want it to freeze. Just like that, stay still. Yet, we want to grow. You see the rub? So we, what we have is this thing in our mind that it's like we're saying, God, I want to be like you, make me like Jesus, but please don't change anything in my life. Just zap me with it. Just download it to me. Give me the faith of Abraham, but don't make me walk through what he walked through. Give me the courage of Daniel, but I don't want to face any lions. Make me like Jesus as long as I don't have to leave my comfort zone. So this is what we do. We say, we don't say it, but we say it. God, please grow me, but don't change a thing. Right? And the problem with this is that change is part of growth. You don't get to grow in the likeness of Christ without God changing your circumstances. You don't get to be part of a growing and healthy church without God changing your church. Your family will rarely grow in the grace and knowledge and a greater trust and a greater hope in God without God changing things in your life to cause that. God uses change to cultivate change and growth and transformation in your life. And this is the, what's so hard about it is it's hardly ever change we would ask for. It's usually not going to be changed that you would like get the multiple choice. That's the one I want. It's usually not going to be that. And so let me ask you this. When change comes to you, perhaps change is on your doorstep right now. When change comes to you because God is trying to do something in you and grow you and grow his kingdom and grow his church and grow your family and grow your kids. When God is doing that and change comes to you, how do you respond? How are you responding? Let me get in your space a little more here at the church and then maybe beyond that. When you're asked to change your Sunday morning schedule because help is needed in a kid's classroom, maybe in the cafe, how do you respond? Whoa, don't mess with my schedule. Let me get really in your space. When your community group that you've gotten so comfortable with has a discussion about starting a new group, about needing someone else to step up and lead. How do you respond? I finally like these people a little bit. Don't mess with my group. 
when a relationship changes to where it's not what it's always been to you, when work changes to where things don't work the way they used to, when the budget doesn't add up the way it used to add up. Friends, when the circumstances of your life change, how do you respond? I think so often we resist any kind of change because I can't see how that would be good for anybody. But is that not the nature of the gospel? Is that not what the gospel is? How can that give life? How can death give life? And so we resist it. But that's the point. That's the point Jesus is saying. God's kingdom is a growing kingdom, and it grew. And change in his hands is an instrument of growth. And what you may be resisting by resisting the change is the very work of God in your life. You may be holding your hand up to the very thing God wants to put in your life to bring about a growth and a glory that you can't possibly imagine. You may be asking God for a breakthrough and he's trying to use change to break through and you've got your hand up. So friends, because God's kingdom grows and change is part of that growth, we don't have to be afraid of change. We don't have to resist change with growth is stepping on your toes and pushing you off the branch that you're used to sitting on. You don't have to fight it. You can look to the Lord in faith and embrace it even, even embrace it, not just go along with it, but embrace it and say, Lord, thy will be done. Even though I may not understand it or see it or really even want the change, and I don't know how that can add up to anything better, I do know this about God's kingdom. It grows, and I know if God's going to grow me as part of his growing kingdom, he's going to change things in my life. And I can trust that he will change them for my good and for his glory. You can trust that when change happens, whether you asked for it or not, God can, God can and will use that for your good and his glory, even when it doesn't come the way you expected it or asked for it. You see, that's the thing about the mustard seed, is it not? It defied all expectations. What came from it is not what anybody foresaw, which leads us to the third characteristic. The kingdom of God will be greater than all kingdoms. The last part of verse 19 there says it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So this characteristic of the kingdom speaks not to what can be fully seen now, though we see in part, but it speaks to the reality of what God's kingdom will become in the end. It speaks to our hope of the kingdom. Okay? So what started as the smallest and seemingly most insignificant and perhaps even backwards beginning, because think how backwards it is. What's up is down, first is last, smallest smallest is greatest, through death comes life. That's as backwards as it can be. That's the kingdom that came, and this is the kingdom that will overshadow and stand above for all eternity all other kingdoms as the greatest. It will be known as a kingdom of rest, and shelter and shade for the people of God. That's the picture that Jesus provides us in the parable. It will be the kingdom that everyone will want to have a place in. You know, in this day, 
Um, Rome was the great superpower of uh, their time. And so if you would have ever told someone first that Christianity is going to last beyond this guy, Jesus, second, that it would actually be the kingdom that people have longed for all their lives, where they could actually have rest and care and the protection they needed, they would have laughed at you. They would have called you a complete fool. Yet today we see that Rome is no longer the superpower. Assyria and Babylonia and Greece and kingdoms have risen and fallen all along the way and they will continue to do so. And the point that Jesus is making here is that this kingdom, his kingdom, the one he is bringing, it's not gonna be a kingdom like that that's here today and gone tomorrow. This isn't a tree that the birds come and they kind of just light on a branch along the way and they get a little bit of rest and, and then they move on. This one isn't temporary. That's what he's saying in this. No, they're gonna come, make their nest, find their shelter, find their shade and their refuge in its branches. And so this is the, the irony about this. The temple ruler, what was he trying to guard? the rest for God's people. He's trying to guard the Sabbath rest of God's people with all his rules. And Jesus was telling them that in him, the kingdom of rest and shelter and shade, in him it's come. He is the kingdom of God in whom all God's people would find their refuge and this kingdom will be greater than all other kingdoms. Look with me very uh, quickly, if you will, Revelation chapter seven. This is worth turning to if you have a Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, what we get here um, through John is a picture, if you will, of the tree that began so small and insignificant. Uh, Revelation 7, we're going to look at verses 9 through 10 and then 15 through 17. John was on the island of Patmos and he received this final revelation of God, which we have here. uh, And he was given into a glimpse into what the kingdom of God, this great tree, would fully and finally become. So verse uh, 9 and 10 in chapter 7, he said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. I'm at verse 15 now. They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, hear the words here, will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, why he's their shade, nor any scorching heat. Can you see this? This tree of refuge it's become, and here's why, verse 17. For the lamb is in their midst. The lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, what a picture this is given. What a great hope that this picture gives us. What started with a baby born in a barn and men, a man who died on a cross, and it grew to 12 and 120, and people scoffed at it and said, There's no way. How many people is it now? It's a number that no one can count in a place where nobody can ever hurt them again. 
where there's no more hunger, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more scorching heat. And it's not just people from one little corner of the country, but from all over the world, every tongue, nation, and tribe, and they're all gathered around one thing, one person, the Lamb. He is their shelter, He's their provider, He's their caregiver, He is their refuge, He is their salvation. There's no more tears in this tree. And they all sing one song. You ever heard a tree full of birds just singing it up, making it beautiful? This tree has one song being sung by every single person. Verse 10 of Revelation 7, salvation belongs to our God. That is the song they sing. Friends, can you picture that tree that is greater than all the others? Can you hear the song coming from it? It started small, so nothing, so insignificant, so in a barn, so in the dirt, and it grew and it changed and it became the greatest of all kingdoms. And today, even today, all who come, all who come to Jesus will find the refuge and the salvation and the hope they've been longing for. Friends, Jesus gave this parable to teach about the kingdom so that those who hear would, train, would change, repent, turn away from their sins, turn to him and receive him, the king, and have life in his name. This is an invitation today. No matter where you find Jesus, if you've been following him for 30 years, for three days, or you haven't followed Christ yet, this is an invitation to see that he is God's salvation among us. This is an invitation to join that song that will ring throughout all e eternity and say yes to Jesus. Have you received him today? Are you saying yes to him today? In Jesus, the kingdom of God and his salvation has come. Come and say with those who will sing, salvation belongs to our God. Let us pray together.